Welcome to 7 Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. Most people are pretty uncomfortable talking about death. I hope this program can help to change that and make death a more natural topic of conversation. Today's guest is Vicky. Vicky is a nurse. Grief is a ball in a box, and there's a button. When the ball hits the button, that's that pain that you feel while you're grieving. Question one. What do you believe happens to a person's consciousness or spirit after the body dies? I've had to think about this a lot in the last little bit with facing the mortality of some loved ones over the last little bit. But what I think that I choose to believe is that, like you learn in science, that energy can't be created nor can it be destroyed. So whereas that conscience isn't existing in a living, breathing body, I do believe that the energy from that person's conscious goes into the universe to be repurposed somewhere else, if that makes sense. And I don't know what that is, but I do know as a person who works in a career in science that that energy has to go somewhere. So where? Not sure, but somewhere. That consciousness exists in one form or another. So do you believe that that consciousness still carries some imprints of this life that it's been having on Earth? That is where, like, I don't consider myself to be much of a spiritual or a religious person. So that part I would have to grapple with a little bit more. And I lean towards, like, the consciousness part, no. But that person's being yes like all of those atoms and all of those electrons just being shared somewhere that like those thoughts are made out of chemicals so somewhere they're reacting with something else right so do you believe then that energy disperses or stays discreet as i I think it disperses and i think that there's probably particles of you know your loved ones and my loved ones in every single thing in every single item in this universe like it's almost impossible for it not to be like if you think about how like diffusion works eventually like all of the particles are equal on each sides right so as time goes on over the billions and millions of years of you know evolution we all are just basically one giant soup of the people before us so You just said that since the beginning of time, we're all interconnected in a sense, right? Yeah. And that means that that actually expands to the whole universe. Is that? If I like think about it hard enough, that's what I think I believe. Yeah, that there's just like pieces of us that reach further than you could ever possibly imagine. Hmm. Have you always believed something like this? Like when you were a child, did you have a different set of beliefs that you can recall? 
when I was a child, I don't think I ever really thought much about death because I hadn't had any experiences with it. We never had pets and I didn't lose a loved one until adulthood. So the first time that I lost somebody, I was already in my mid-20s. And then I think it was a little bit more hopeful watching somebody, you know, deteriorate and experience a slower death. When you watch them as they experience things like talking to somebody who's already gone. For example, when my grandmother was dying, she was talking to her own mom. So I think at that time, myself and a lot of my family members were kind of choosing to believe that this was kind of like they were looking forward to being reunited. And whether or not that is true, I've come across lots of content creators that work in hospice and work around death that say that, you know, this is not an uncommon experience with people who are dying, is that they seem to be speaking to and reaching out to people who are gone before them. So maybe there is something that's even more obvious than what I believe now, but... That's really interesting. Yeah. Question two. Have you ever been present when someone else's life ended? Yes. So that's something that I've actually encountered probably more than I would like to, but that's part of my job. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for there to be deaths when you work in healthcare. And it's very different than experiencing death in your personal life. Like, there's people who work in healthcare who are very good at compartmentalizing and others who are not. And I am definitely one of the easy to compartmentalize and it doesn't affect me nearly as profoundly as losing a person in your personal life, which I mean, obviously that would be the case for most of us, I think, but there's sadness, of course, but in the case of like, when I see it, a lot of times there's events that happen afterwards that are happy. For example, if I'm involved in an organ procurement, which obviously is end of life, it is a palliating procedure, but then being able to move into the next room where they're transplanting those organs, that is a healing experience because it, it can be very traumatic to go through the first part, but then to see it being a life-changing, life-altering, life-saving thing for somebody else, it does make you feel a whole lot better about the whole thing. You're in a really privileged position to be able to see that. That's amazing. It is. And to understand the gift that those people are giving to others is also very profound. Mm. Is there anything about a particular death or deaths that you would feel comfortable talking a little bit more about, like a specific one? I experienced the death of a pet actually this summer. And I wish that there wasn't such a stigma over grieving a pet as much as you would a person. We don't, as like a society or as employers or as friends, give people the space and grace to grieve an animal the same way that they would a family member. Like in our collective agreement, we are given X amount of days to grieve a loved one, but we aren't given any time 
to grieve a pet, despite how profoundly that loss might affect us and might affect our ability to safely work. Yeah. And that was something that I thought about as I was and continue to grieve my dog. Why aren't we allowed to grieve them the same way as we grieve people? Because we have very special relationships with our pets. They're so different and they're so unconditional. Mm. So it's like a weird thing that we don't give ourselves the permission to grieve them the same way. Mm. Yeah, my condolences on the passing of your dog. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know in my own life, the loss of pets that I had when I was a child, I'm really surprised how long standing that grief has been in my life because it's been more invisible. Mm -hmm. I saw actually a diagram of a box instead of like grief ever going away. It's it's that grief is a ball in a box and there's a button. When the ball hits the button, that's that pain that you feel while you're grieving. And the ball, you can never get out of the box, but the ball gets smaller. So sometimes as it's bouncing around, it'll hit that button when you're least expecting it. You know, as time goes on, it's not hitting it quite as often because it's occupying less space, but it never really goes away. And I found that exactly like you said, like something will happen or I'll come around a corner and just the way that the sunlight hits the floor, it just knocks the breath out of you sometimes, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Question three. Have you ever experienced communication from someone who is no longer alive in the physical world? Or have you wondered if you were receiving communication from someone who has passed on? This is a story that my mom tells me of what happened when I was an infant. She'd put me in my crib and I was fussing and she could hear me fussing and I all of a sudden stopped crying. And when she came into the room, like there was a rocking chair that was moving across the room. Her best friend at that time, her mother had recently passed away and had been like a figure in her life, you know, growing up. And she said that she could feel her presence in that room. And I know that experiences like that are not uncommon. I obviously, being very young, don't remember any of this. But I do feel like you do get signs from loved ones after they've moved on, like a shiny penny on the ground or, you know, a butterfly that lands on your jacket. I mean, these would be highly specific to the relationship that you had with those people. But there have been times where, you know, a sunbeam will cross the floor and I know that my dog is lying in it. I can't see him there, but I know he's there. That must be so comforting. It is. It's very comforting to know that, like, he's there. If only in, like, my spirit, but just the reminders that come in you know, the things that he would do or the places he would lie down, being reminded that those were experiences that him and I shared together or, like, what enriched my life with having him there. And it's painful to not have that anymore. Sorry, I'm going to tear up now. But to have the reminder that I had that is nice. 
And so you now like having to shake the feeling that like you're crying over your dead dog on the radio. I think there will be so many people that will be supported by that. I hope so. And I hope that we continue to normalize like having those feelings. Question four. Who do you want to be with you when you die? And what circumstances would you choose if you could choose them for your death? Having seen so many horrible, awful circumstances that I would definitely not wish upon my worst enemy, let alone a loved one or myself, I wish nothing more than to pass away in my sleep before any of my faculties have left my body. I would rather have passed away a month too early than a day too late. Oh, wow. What would be a day too late? After, like, even one day of suffering that I know would be with me for the duration of my life. I have a friend, and this is her policy. She's always had lots of dogs, and... Her policy for when it's, you know, her dogs get older and you have to start watching for these kinds of things. And her policy for her dogs is no bad day. And I think about that a lot. And I think that's what I would want for myself, too. That's really interesting. And I mean, I know that we don't really have control over that. But if we did and we could, like, pre-program that... I would totally just say, I would rather go a month too early than a day too late. So, not knowing that you're going to die, just going to sleep and not waking up mm -hmm. peacefully, sleeping yeah, I at home. That's the ideal way. And as for who I would want to be there, whoever would want to be. Because... So many people have very strong feelings about whether or not they want to be around loved ones while they die. And from what I understand from friends of mine who do work with dying people is that dying people do actually, when they know they're dying, choose who will be there. And it always seems to be, you know, they hang on until the last person is there where they wait until the last person is gone. And it seems to me that there's evidence that people do have some control over that, even in those last moments, when you have control over so little. That's so interesting. And I hope that that's the case. Like, I hope that, you know, when all of your systems are failing you all at once, that you do have control over one last thing. Yeah. And I think that if faced with that, that I would find that comforting to know that I had that little bit of empowerment to choose. This is the time. Yeah. And though that also opens the whole floor to the whole medical assistance in dying, where certain groups of people do have a lot more control and choice over that, which is great. Yeah. You're listening to CJSR, 88.5 FM, in Edmonton. 
listening to Seven Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. If you'd like to be interviewed, or if you have a comment about the show, please get in touch. My email is sevenquestionsaboutdeath at gmail.com. The seven is the number seven. Question five. How do you feel about the fact that you will die? Are you afraid of your death? I think that in the last little while, I've thought about it more. I just turned 40, so I had those kind of like over-the-hill thoughts about how, you know, like statistically, I'm half finished my life. And I think about the things that I haven't yet accomplished and the goals that I haven't met. And I do get a little bit scared that maybe I'll never accomplish these things. But then I try to reframe that and think about the things that I have accomplished. And that list is a lot longer than the things that I've wanted to do and haven't. So I do take solace in knowing that there were things that I wanted to do and I did them. And even as I live my day-to-day life, I try to tell myself yes more often than I tell myself no. But working in the field that I do, I have gathered a sizable collection of things that I'm afraid of, that I wasn't afraid of before. So I take my time walking down the stairs and I make sure that everyone in my vehicle has their seatbelts fastened and I try to curb my risky behaviors because I have these fears. Because yes, I do fear my own death, but it's not the death itself I think I fear. I think I fear the circumstances around it. I fear having one of those unexpected traumatic deaths, like the idea of dying on the side of a highway in a car accident is terrifying. I think that yes, I do fear dying, but I fear my loved ones dying more than my own death. So I don't catastrophize the idea of my own death. I tend to more catastrophize the death of the people around me, like the idea of losing, you know, my husband or my children I think that I fear grief more than I fear death. I've had some people say they don't fear their death, but they fear pain. Yeah. And I think that that is what I mean when I say like the circumstances around it, the fact that it may be drawn out. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be on life supporting measures. If you are, you know, admitted with these catastrophic injuries with very poor prognosis, I don't want to be drawn out. We're going to hold on just in case I don't want that for myself. I don't want to be mm-hmm. sustained by tubes mm-hmm. at that point because I've seen what gift an organ donor can be to several lives. I would rather those lives be improved and go on than be that shred of hope that doesn't amount to anything. I read somewhere that unexpected deaths by accident are only like about 10% or something like that in the U.S. That makes sense. 
But because of where you work, that's what you see. That's what I see. All the yeah, time. So, so the percentage is totally yes. different for you because yes. that's your daily life. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. Like, I probably have a very skewed idea of things that are dangerous because I see, you know, that small percentage who get the serious injuries from that thing. But in my brain, that thing causes that thing. So we don't. Stairs cause death. Yes. Stairs cause death. Motorcycles cause death. Snowmobiles cause death. Everything causes death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's a lot to carry. And then a lot to manage for a happy, peaceful life. <laughs> it can be, but you have to learn how to cope with that. And you have to learn how to manage your own anxieties over those things. Because some of those anxieties are founded. Cars are dangerous. Like, statistically, like, if you're going to die in an unexpected accident, it's probably going to be in your car. But most of us don't drive around anxious in the car. You'd be anxious to jump out of the airplane, even though, you know, statistically you're more likely to die in your car. So you just have to learn to, I guess, have some cognitive dissonance about your activities. Yes. <laughs> Which I do have because my husband, he rides a motorcycle and... We at work call them donor cycles because oh my gosh, many of our donors have succumbed to injuries from yeah. catastrophic motorcycle accidents. And so, yes, I do have to kind of pull the wool over my eyes and pretend like I don't know that it's a very risky activity. Mm. And also open a very beefy life insurance policy because if I'm going to be a widow I want to be a rich widow <laughs> oh my gosh so a sense of humor also has yeah. to come into it as well yeah. and that is part of coping I think when you work with these kinds of scenarios is that there's morbid humor that gets involved because it's how you cope in the moment as you find something that's funny and you laugh about it so that you don't cry about it Question six. Are there any traditions or practices connected with death which you find meaningful? I've come to learn that all the things that we do with a person after they die are meaningful to the people who are doing them. Say I've died and my family are doing these things. It has nothing to do with me. Those are the, the rituals that they're doing that they need to process their grief and their feelings and all of that is valid. And I love seeing how people grieve in different ways. Like, this is going to sound weird and morbid, but like I love bones and dead things and I love oddities and I love curiosities and I've seen many people who are into the same interests as me who grieve and you know the rituals that they have with their say pets that have passed where they you know lay them in a beautiful box and they arrange them with these beautiful flowers and their toys and it's completely just like art it is totally just like a shrine to that small being that they lay them to rest like that and I've seen others who after a certain amount of time 
bring them back up out of the ground and they'll have them like articulated into, you know, the bones of the animal that they once were and just have, you know, like their cat on the mantle in a completely different form than they're used to, but... So the cat bones? Yeah. Ah. And there's places that will clean them and completely re-articulate a skeleton and just put it on a base. I had no idea. I know. Isn't that cool? It's very interesting. Yeah. Actually, I follow, she's pretty well known on TikTok, actually. She is a young lady who had bone cancer. She had a sarcoma in her leg and she had to have her leg amputated below the knee. And as part of her grieving process for her own leg, she actually kept it and she had it articulated the same way. And she takes her foot to visit places. The bones. Yeah. Like just her foot, but without any flesh on it. It's just all the bones that they, you know, wired back together in their anatomical positions. And she takes it places just like she would if it was still attached to her leg. (laughs) It's so interesting. Yeah. And she takes pictures of her leg on it, all its adventures. And that's, you know. I love it. A really neat way, I think, to deal with something that's very serious. And as far as I'm to know, she has had a reoccurrence of her cancer. So maybe that's just another thing that she's going to use to process her own death and her own mortality. You know, as a disease might progress for her. Mm. I don't know what her prognosis is. I think about people like this all the time who are aware that they are dying How do you reconcile that? Question seven. If you could ask a source of all knowledge some questions about death, what would you ask? Does it hurt? And I would love to know What is that person sensing and what is that person experiencing? Because these are things that I feel like we'll never actually know because you're never going to be able to ask that person. What is the sensation like? What, if anything, is going through your head? What are you thinking about? Do you feel at peace in your brain or is that a time where, like, you feel your regrets the most? I think I would just really like to know about the personal experience of dying because it's just one of those things where I feel like we're never going to know. And then maybe I would be comforted and maybe I wouldn't be afraid to die. And I'm sure that it's very situational, but under, you know, the more peaceful circumstances, I would just love to know, like, what you're thinking about? Out in the trees, dirt on our knees, we lay him down forever. And on that hill, there it was still, as in the My thanks to today's guest, Vicky. Vicky is a nurse, and we just heard an excerpt from the Be Good Tanya's Dog Song 2. You've been listening to Seven Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. If you're interested in being interviewed, 
or if you have a comment or a question, please get in touch. My email is 7questionsaboutdeath at gmail.com. The 7 is a number 7. Thanks for listening.